Welcome to the Live Your Legacy podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kelly, and I believe we each make a meaningful contribution by sharing our own unique gifts and talents. I'm excited you're here. I'm thrilled to do another episode with an amazing person, Bernadette Espinosa. Thank you. Thank you. For joining I'm so us. to be here. Yeah. This it's is amazing awesome. what happens when you go on a hike with cool people. Yeah. Those con- those are my favorite. Um, those are some of my favorite conversations. Just kind of the walk and talk. Yeah. You get out of your normal environment. You get out of your space, your personal space. You get out of your business environment. You just go out and kind of have a free form dialogue. You learn a lot about people. Yeah. I mean, we've been in the same, you know, industry together, um, running into each other, you know, even attempts at collaboration. And the, like, we, I learned so much about you on our hike. And, and so this is cool. I'm really glad to be here. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to have you here. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, your origin story. What was early life for you? And um, you can share with people, obviously, you know, what it is you do now. We're, okay. We both work in a real estate industry in different capacities, but yep. that's how, how we became acquainted. But yep. just kind of share, like, what was early life for you and, and uh, you know, what led you into the space that you're in in your adult life? Okay, yeah. So, so on the business side, I'm on my 20th year in the title industry. So that, that's, that's a, a lengthy part of my life. But, you know, I am a first-generation American. Like, my mom and dad were both born in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. I was born in San Francisco. And I'm the first of our generation, you know, my brothers and sisters of being first-generation USA. Yeah, that's and, cool. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I couldn't speak any English until I was about five years old. Wow. Um, came from a very um, traditional, like I guess I call it traditional, but a very Latin family. Yeah. And so um, my mom was stay at home. My dad, you know, was the breadwinner. What we would call, I don't know, if it's, can we still call it blue collar? But he was blue collar, yeah. you know, worker, and he worked his ass off. Like my dad was such a provider for our family. I look back and I think to myself, my mom was able to stay home. My dad provided, mm-hmm. um, and. I we I never knew as a little kid that we didn't have much. Yeah. So San, San Francisco too. I mean that's yeah. uh, that's quite a place to grow up or or yep. you know start. How did your parents land in San Francisco? Separately, funnily yeah. enough, but um, in those days when a lot of people were migrating over, um, they would have communities of people from the same countries, right? Like mm-hmm. Florida has a lot of Cuban population, and so in San Francisco, a lot of the people from Nicaragua all kind of came together in the same town. Cool. And um, that's how my mom and dad met. My dad ended up on a baseball team with my mom's sister's boyfriend. Oh wow! And so that's how they connected, yeah. and um, that was you know their little Nicaraguense crowd. Yeah. And they play, you know, they all hung out and did their stuff together and learned the language together. And um, my father. Uh, joined the military, joined the army and in hopes of getting his citizenship. And so he served for a few years. Um, He was in uh, Okinawa for a while, but no active, you know, no active duty, but kind of finished that out and did not get his citizenship, but he did end up going through the normal process back in the day. Okay. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, my mom and dad met, my mom was 10 years old when she met my dad. And he was, he was about, he's 10 years older than her, but they finally got together years later. (laughs) Did they both come as children? They both came to the U.S. as children? My, my mom was a little girl and my mom's mom, my grandmother, she, um, her husband was actually a pretty well-to-do person in, in Nicaragua. He was like a mayor Uh and, um, my grandmother was leaving him and you weren't really granted divorces and things like that. So she chartered, 
you know, separate flights for her six kids and came to the States and believe it or not, you know, got a job at Levi Strauss as a peacemaker, as peace sewer. Yeah. I mean, like Americana meets immigration. Right. <laughs> How incredible is it? Yeah, bananas. <laughs> yeah, and what a leap of faith and courage yeah. in that era, especially. Oh my gosh, yeah. To flee her country. To leave your husband and you got to leave the country there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she came to the States and um, my dad's story, similarly, um, he was a little bit older when he came to the States, but their family came over like one at a time to just like build a new life for themselves mm -hmm. so that's they just they, wanted a better life they wanted a better different. life yeah absolutely and so um my my dad is the youngest of five brothers or six kids and my mom was the youngest as well so uh, my dad became a family friend on my mom's side mm -hmm. and then um, after he went to the military and came back my mom had I guess grown up and so they started dating after that and she graduated from high school and the end of the summer they got married so wow yeah. yeah they got married young yeah they got married really young so um yeah that's cool it was yeah it's a good story i mean my my mom and dad tell a lot of stories about how they grew up and whatnot and it was a very different life a very very different way of living um my dad's sister um all of my dad's family is now passed but um my dad's sister my aunt argentina wrote a book about the family and her daughter published it and not like in an Amazon, you know, not like a, yeah. but like published this book for the family. And so we got to read all these stories that my aunt wrote and stories that I just recently read in the last couple of years that included stuff about my dad. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, it's so funny. Yeah. You know, um, little things like they had a little dog and um, my dad, when we were growing up, he used to say that, you know, we all treated him like the dog, you know? That's funny. <laughs> and so in this book, so here's my dad, you know, this dad, right? And yeah. he's like, you guys just treat me like the dog, you know, nobody says hi to me. Nobody wakes me up on the sofa, things like that. And then there's a, a story in the book that my aunt wrote about my dad crying because he doesn't get, he's like five years old and he's under the table with their dog and he's telling the dog how he gets treated, that the dog gets treated better than him. Oh my gosh. That's so so funny. my brother, sister and I were getting a kick out of that. So moment. that was the so, theme in his life. <laughs> oh yeah. We were like, oh my gosh, so hilarious. So yeah. But um, yeah, very fortunate family life, all of those things, not to say that we didn't go through all the the trials, tribulations, traumas that most people will experience. But, yeah. you know, little things in our family were really big things, like, especially for my generation. And I, I don't even have a full appreciation for it until as every year goes by. I mean, when I bought my first house, my dad was in tears. I mean, that was just like, it was such a huge achievement. It's a huge achievement. Yeah, yeah. For me to live on my own. Yeah. was a huge achievement. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And here it is year 2023. And I mean, I, I would venture to guess my dad's been gone since 2000 seven but you know even back then he was like you're buying a house yeah. you, you know so oh yeah i'm sure he was filled filled with pride from that yeah for what sure. brought your family to arizona well it was just me so i was living in the bay area i worked for a media company in san francisco mm -hmm. on first and market and i lived in wana creek and um, one of my clients ran a company here in arizona and arizona wasn't my territory i was actually the east coast account manager and all my clients were along the Eastern seaboard, but we had this one client in Arizona that did not like his rep. And so our publisher, I worked for a publishing company said, we need you to take care of this account in Arizona. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, I was like, I'm the East coast manager. Yeah. Like I go to these really cool places. All the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
So I had to come and meet the client in Arizona. And while I was out here, I was like, well, I'm going to freaking get some business. I'm going to have to go to, if I'm going to have to come out to Arizona, at least like, you know, once or twice a year. Sure. Um, and the only people that I knew in Arizona were my cousins that lived in Gilbert, which back then it was like 1998, 1999. Gilbert wasn't what it is today. Oh no, stop signs. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I'd come out to visit them and I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be, you know, but it was more in some capacities and then less in other capacities. I think, um, this is so cheesy, but there was a part of me that expected to see like, you know, covered wagons and sidewalks (laughs) and, (laughs) <laughs> and so um that's that that brought me out here and that client eventually recruited me and um I was this cocky California girl I was like um I live in San Francisco and right. so um the offer just kept getting better and better and I learned a lot about business by the in the way in which he presented the offer um because the cost of living index was so 22% less at the time and then um the company the way the company was structured he was able to create an offer for me that um, absorbed a lot of my living expenses through the company. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's and a so, good incentive. Yeah. And so um, even though um, the net pay was less, I didn't have any expenses. And, right. and so I learned a lot, but that's event- That's how I came out here. I worked, I was the VP of marketing and business development for a computer company. And it was a system integration company where we, you know, white box manufactured computers and sent them out to people. Um cool. And it was a really great experience. And that's what brought me out here. And so um, I had my one cousins that lived in Gilbert. But other than that, when I decided to move out here, I I just said one thing to myself, the what if quotient. Yeah. What if I said no? Would I always wonder? So yeah. I'm like, I'm not married. I don't have any kids. If if there was an opportunity to, to change or move on in a big capacity like that, it was then. So I did. <laughs> that's awesome yeah that was in 2000 so I've been out here since I'm um, on my 23rd year 23rd year yeah, yeah. big leap of faith yeah I you. love it it was very difficult transition I'm sure um but um I now my mom lives out here my sister lives out here my brother will probably eventually move out here in the next couple of years yeah yeah they kind of follow right Absolutely. So I, and I grew up in a little town when I lived in the Bay Area we lived in Chico California for a little while which has a university there Chico State. Uh-huh. And so a lot of our family now, my cousins that have kids and, and whatnot, they're going to Chico State or ASU. And so now they're like, oh, well, we have family out in Arizona now. And so a lot of them that are choosing to come out here, they're like, oh, cousin Bernie. Yeah, opened <laughs> up new possibilities for them. Yeah, That's really absolutely. cool. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. How'd you get into the title industry? Oh, boy. Um, so the company that I moved out here to work for, we kind of really got to a place where it was doing what it needed to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the um, sh- a lot of the offer that brought me out here wasn't going to come to fruition. So I was really brought out here to help bring a company back on back into the black and successful. Mm-hmm. And um, we were doing that. And so part of my employment offer was that once... We got back up and running. The goal was to sell the company for a couple million dollars at the time, which was significant back then. And um, I would get like 5% of the net proceeds, you know, post-close. And so I was like, okay, I might be 35 years old with like a significant amount of money to my name. And so that's what really brought me out. But then that wasn't going to happen because as we became more and more successful, um, the owner became less and less desiring of selling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it just wasn't anymore... you know, we were talking about this when we were hiking. Sometimes things just run their course. They do. And it's time to move on. And so um, I was time for me to move on. And um, 
I, this is funny at the time, um, I still have the condo that I lived in then. And, um, I had a roommate, you know, one of my friends, um, had a friend that was coming, moving to Arizona. And so she came, I'm like, Hey, she could, you know, rent out the room in my house. And, um, she was a loan officer from uh, Washington mutual. Okay. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She was with Wamu and she's like, you would make a great marketing rep. Because I know I was leaving this company. Yeah. I had a firm belief like this instinctual, instinctually that I needed to quit in order to look for a job. I just, okay. you know, um, I would, it would literally have been, it was literally the first time I'd be looking for work in Arizona because I was recruited out of California. Yeah. And so, um, so I went and started door knocking title companies and meeting people and I got uh, some job offers and I became a marketing rep and was like, this will be cool to do for until I figure out my next move. And now I'm going on my 20th year in this business. So amazing. <laughs> well, you followed your intuition, but then you had the uh, courage and tenacity. So you basically went cold called uh-huh. door knocked, unsolicited <laughs> yeah. to title companies yeah. and said, I think I'd be great at this job. I don't know what it is. Told me. Yeah. I don't know. yeah. I've never done it before. Yeah. I bought but, a house. I don't know what this is, yeah. but. <laughs> but I think I could do it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, um, my roommate, Emily, that worked at WAMU, she gave me some names of some companies because she's had closings. And sure. that's how I started kind of getting outside of the very small circle that my social circle that I had when I moved here. That's how I started meeting people. And yeah, I cold called title companies and, you know, sat down and met with them. And it, honestly, it's the underbelly of this industry. I think that whenever people buy or sell a house, they don't realize all the little tentacles that are operating underground with whatever entity, whatever party to the transaction, there's so many other moving parts. And so here I had already closed on two properties when I was looking for work in this industry and I had no idea this role even existed. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think unless you're in the industry, you don't realize it because there's such a, uh, there's so many things to your point that are connected around a real estate transaction. And if you think of the number of people and resources it involves and the number of people it employs and the number of different uh, entities that come together as part of the process. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty significant. Well, I mean, even as a con- on the consumer side, right? Like I said, I already, I already had two closings before I even got into the business. I, and I went to offices to do my closing and you don't realize that I just think that these were arbitrarily chosen. Like, right. like who decided that I was coming over here to sign, you know, I never even knew that this stuff existed. So yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. So I've been, um, I've had a fortuitous life. Yeah. So far. That's really cool. Yeah. Very, very blessed. Well, you obviously impress some people. And I think that, um, well, thank you. certainly in any industry, there's always room for talent. I know I'm always looking for talent. Yep. You know, I'm always looking to be in a relationship with talented people and it doesn't, it doesn't even necessarily matter to me, the connection, I just want to bring good people together with good people. Yep. And if you know what people are trying to accomplish, a lot of times you can help them connect the dots and accelerate the process for them. Yes, I love that. I I um whenever I'm thinking about connecting the dots in whatever capacity, whether it's social, business, or otherwise, recruiting, I've um gotten to a place for me personally where everything goes into two buckets. Um, can we win together? Mm-hmm. And are you my people? Yeah. Right. And so I use that as a generality and usually if there's something that's off or something that's on, it's because those things are in, in alignment. Yeah. They said your vibe attracts your tribe. Yeah. Right? So absolutely. are you kind of like energ- energetically balanced? Absolutely. You have some parallels in your vision. Yep. You have the same kind of core values. Core values is everything for yeah. sure. Yeah. So we have a lot of conversations about integrity. I had that 
conversation with my kids many times growing up and like what that means and how that manifests and shows up in real life and doing what you say you'll do. And um, I, I think it's, that's something to me that appears fairly quickly with people in relationships. Yeah. Is if, if they're committed or if they're just interested. Yes. <laughs> that's like um, the chicken and the bacon, right? Or wait, no, the egg and the, and the ham. Yeah. The, right. the egg, uh, the chicken was, um, um, the chicken was interested and the, the pig was committed. Yeah. Right. The chicken participated. <laughs> yes, the, yeah. the pig was fully committed. Both of them made a great breakfast. Yeah. One of them was way more into it than the other one. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. yeah. We were talking about um, connecting the dots and we talked a little bit about EQ and yeah. like, what's your experience with that and how does that relate to what oh, you do man. Um, I'm a huge, um, I'm very passionate about emotional intelligence and I find it to be not just passionate about it, but it fascinates me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm always in the wonderment of other people's success or perceived success. Like, and a lot of times when you learn people's story, it's not very often that they tell you about some glorified education road that they went down, right? It's usually this culmination of experiences and and, you know, and education and whatnot. But I just, I firmly believe that so many people's success is not necessarily based in what they've been educated in or a degree in. It's based in their ability to connect with other humans. And that's what emotional intelligence is. And for me, um, the, the, that, that subject matter be kind of came part of my vocabulary in the mid to late 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really my first endeavors into the business world. And I've never been, I never finished college you know, I went to the Fashion Institute of Design. I did some community college, but I always excelled. I always did well. I always scholastically did well, and I always did well with people. Um, and I think for a few contributing factors, I think EQ. Um, and also, I was extremely shy growing up. And so um, my desire to connect with people was if I help them, yeah. if I can offer some help, I, I won't, be, I won't be, feel as uncomfortable because I'll be helping. So um, I kind of carried that through my whole life. I mean, and grade school um back then I I you know I was one of the only Hispanic kids in the class and when we would bring on more more Hispanic children would come into the school a lot of them didn't speak English and so I was their partner because I could speak both languages Uh um and I liked to help I was like I'll be your partner I'll help you I'll be your buddy but um so when I really started to understand what emotional intelligence was you know I learned that that's what it is is that desire to help people authentically and to really put yourself in their shoes to have an understanding for them, right? So empathy is such a big factor in that. Um, what your own awareness is a big factor in that. Like if you really study EQ, you'll learn that only 36% of people can actually name the emotion they're having while they're having it. Wow, that's incredible, huh? Yeah, I mean, it really is because most of us have reflection. Right. Or we have, here's what I would do if this happened. <laughs> yeah. But most of the time we're not in that full awareness of the emotions that we're experiencing as they're coming to us. So over the course of my career, I've really been into EQ and I really firmly believe that is a cornerstone of any success I've ever experienced. Um, And then I opened my big mouth at another company that I worked for because I was part of the thought leaders conference for pretty big company I used to work for. And so it was an an honor to get to be part of the thought leaders conference for the whole company. And our CEO sent out a survey and asked everybody, you know, What'd you think of the conference? And there, is there anything we should add or do differently? And I'm like, I think you should have some information here on emotional intelligence. 
So um, I'm not to be the person to do the presentation yeah. for that. <laughs> Thanks for your suggestion. Yeah. You're part of the solution. Exactly. Right? Yes. I'm so excited for you to be part of the solution journey. Um, yeah. However, I'm very grateful to him for asking me to do that because it's now created a little bit of a, a little curriculum that I put together that I do presentations on because um, everybody has heard the term emotional intelligence. I mean, 99% of people on the planet know what that term means. But many of them have heard the terminology, but most people don't know the definition. Yeah. And so to kind of go through and share with people, these are the five pillars of emotional intelligence. Here's what it looks like. You know, even, even um, the coolest thing for me whenever I've done the presentation, for me, the most fulfilling piece is that every single time somebody shares with me how it affected them at home. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. More so than, I mean, yeah. we usually do it with a real estate spin or business spin on it. And every single time somebody tells me, you know, I'm so, I've never seen this before or talked about it before, but I went home that night and had a conversation with my kid and all of a sudden I had a different perspective. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then naturally their, their, their child or their partner or significant others and the two thirds of the people that aren't schooled on exactly. emotional intelligence. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and it's I'm kind of joking about that. <laughs> we all say, well, no, I yeah, understand. I this. Yeah, we all understand it. What but, are the five pillars for reference for our listeners? Oh, gosh. The five um, intelligence? You've got awareness, social awareness, um, social regulation, which is, I mean, um, regulation, which is basically your ability to regulate your emotions, mm -hmm. empathy, motivation, and then social. Mm -hmm. So each one of those pillars, I like to think that the two most important is self-awareness and then um, and empathy, you know, we mess up empathy all the time. Sure. Um, and it's because we're human. We, and we, don't, we don't mess it up because we're bad people. We mess it up because we're trying our best. And, right. um, and to be truly empathetic to somebody is that we're not providing all the solutions. We're not telling them what they should do. We're not providing like, um, at least this didn't happen or we're just really listening and letting somebody know, Hey, it sounds like you're in a tough place right now. Do you want to tell me more about it? <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to approach yeah. it. So do you think your understanding of emotional intelligence helped you overcome your shyness that you experienced when you were young? Um, Cause I wouldn't perceive you as a shy person. Nobody would today. As, you know, as a professional, one of the ways that we've been interacted, I wouldn't yes. be a shy person. No. I mean, if you, if my mom was here, she would probably tell some stories about how shy I was. Like I wouldn't go outside and play. I would cry when I got dropped off in kindergarten. Yeah. And um, it was seventh grade. I remember getting ready for school one morning and I, you're going to think I'm a nut job, but I literally was ironing my shirt and I said, I am not going to be shy today. <laughs> that was it. That was it. And <laughs> I just, I, and it was so funny because two of my girlfriends noticed, they're like, what's with you today? I'm like, I am not shy anymore. <laughs> that was the power of decision though. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I'll never forget it. And, um, but yeah, I was extremely shy and I think, I wouldn't have known that it was emotional intelligence then. It was it was coping for me then. And um, you know, the one thing that something that's interesting about emotional intelligence too is our experiences will make us better or worse mm -hmm. in it. Because our experiences can create jadedness, judgment, opinion, things like that. Mm -hmm. Or our experiences will lend us to being more empathetic and open and vulnerable to the people that we're sharing with. Right. And we fear those things less because we do them less. Mm -hmm. We fear judgment. We, we don't fear the judgment. We don't fear all those things as much because we don't do it. Usually, I feel like in observing all of our behaviors, the things I fear the most are probably some of the things I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. So, um, so yeah, I think that... Um, I think that EQ did help me, but I don't think I knew it was that then. 
yeah. was just I was just trying to figure out ways to like you know make friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing with um, with fear, I think, because I think that can be a motivating force, 100%. but I think it can also be uh, more more often a kind of just a really debilitating force. Mm. And all it is is a story that we're making up in our mind. And so, even with our experiences that you referenced, we're making up stories about all of our experiences too. And they're either empowering stories or they're disempowering stories. Absolutely, I always say there's there's a story we tell, and then there's what happened. Right. Right. And, you know, fear is a liar. That's what it is. Yeah. Because whatever you name it, whatever you decide that fear is, it's a lie that we're, we're sharing. I mean, we all have fear. We're all human, right? There's always things that we fear, but I actually have a t-shirt that says fear is a liar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it is. And I think for me, um, but it, I love what you said. It is a motivating piece as well. I think for me, I've always been driven by the fear of failure. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because that restricts most people. So how did you turn that into something that drives you? I think, um, you know, it's not good, bad, right or wrong. I, I think that for me, I always felt as if that was unacceptable to my family. Yeah. You know, not that anybody, I mean, I was always a straight A student. Like, I feel like my mom and dad had a high expe- higher expectation of me. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, of course, you know, the story I'm telling myself. Sure. But, but for me, I, I never wanted to disappoint anybody. And so for me in my life, it's been my family, right? I don't want to disappoint my family. Um, and, and then the other end of that equation is I have to be successful. There's no safety net for me. Right. <laughs> I'm not, you know what I mean? There's no, you know, I, I'm, I'm my independent, you know, dynasty of Bernie over here. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I have to, I have to make, I have to make it. Well, and I think part of the expectation that you place, I mean, I get what you're saying about, about your family and wanting to feel that they were proud of you or you didn't That's disappoint right. them. But you also set a standard for yourself because part of that is meeting our own expectations. A million percent. And I think a lot of times when we're in a place of uh, frustration or when we're reflecting with any sense of regret that we're looking at a situation knowing that we didn't do the best that we could have done in that situation. Yeah. So, yeah. What is, um, um, we know when, when I say I'll try, I try to catch myself and correct myself and say, no, I'm going to do my best. Yeah. That's a much better way to approach that. That's right. I'll do my best. I'm going to do my best. Yeah. (laughs) I've learned too, to really reframe failure. And I think we change our relationship with failure and what the, public perception is because at least in the era that that I grew up in and you may have experienced this as well you know the the terms that come to mind are negative connotation yeah like loser and right you failed and it just has such like a negative uh, air around it and and so as I've sat with that idea and the idea of failure all failure really is is an outcome that's different than our expectation well said. We set this target and we said, I'm going to go do this. And I mean, we could define failure 10 different ways. If we're doing a half marathon, we'd say, oh, I failed because I didn't hit my time. Well, that was just an arbitrary That's right. thing that we put out there anyway. That's so how so do we well said. call that a failure? Because what we did was we actually completed yeah. something we set out to do. So ultimately, that's really a victory. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's so true, right? Like the expectations that we set for ourselves will drive us down one path or another, right? Yeah. And um, and I also think that over the course of time, the way 
whatever environments we've been brought up in, even in a business environment, right? Like yeah, so true. Like some of my favorite movies that I felt were real about business, mm-hmm. boiler room, right? Like yeah. that's just not today anymore, right? And no. so, but that was like a reflection of truly how a business world looked in some places. And, right. then, and then that's why you can make a movie, quote unquote, a caricature of the reality, right? Yeah. <laughs> or like Wall Street. Or Wall Street, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, um, there was a time in which winning was the only thing. Right. And then the definition of what that win would be, if you didn't hit that expectation that you just described, then it would be equated to failure. Where today, I think that we live much more in um, the thought process of grace and truth. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, we can give ourselves some grace, but the truth of the matter is. <laughs> yeah. And then it's still a win. What's the triumph in something? Yeah. Right. So I feel like um, with that in mind, to me, success is such a personal definition. I agree. And there can be parallels that we have with people around us. We can collaborate with with partners or co-creators, like in the service of a mission or a greater goal that we're working toward together that's meaningful. But what success looks like, even if you're closely aligned with someone, it's still there are variances that are defining success differently for you than yeah. it would for me. I okay, I love that because we're all, we're all each our own individual. And so um, I know with like, like teammates and whatnot, I'll ask them, what does personal success mean to you? Like, mm, great and, question. Yeah. And then because um, I grew up in, I'm in sales, right? So I grew up in a sales environment where it was a different kind of way of achievement. And now it's more like, what is, what is success for you? What's your personal success look like? And how do we help you get there? And then when you're working with yourself, even reminding yourself of these are the things that you said would mean success for you do they still matter right Mm -hmm. it's like a living breathing definition and it's the same thing that we can do for the people that we're either leading or um, collaborating with like hey these are the things you said were important to you are they still important to you right Right. (laughs) but I love that because I agree with you I think that personal success is is very much um personal it's it's about what you know is good for you right like um you know even in our industry I love when we meet with different practitioners because for some of them, the ultimate form of success is that they're done by two every day. So they get to the kids soccer game by three, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not about, um, it's not always about transactions or, you know, GCI and, and all those pieces matter too, but it's how we kind of literally get to share what a personal success looks like for me. Yeah. Yeah. And some people are very driven by that. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. No, as long as it's fulfilling something for them as an individual. Exactly. And there's probably a greater purpose attached to that somehow. Well, I think that like standard parameters, things like that kind of create the guardrails. Yeah. Right. And then you can get down the lane. Yeah. <laughs> so however, um, those all those work, those building blocks work to help you achieve your personal success. Yeah. I uh, was having a conversation earlier today and we were talking about, you know, the continuum of growth and we were kind of talking about early life and really getting traction. And I think anything that we do in life, we have to get really clear about what it is we want to accomplish. Like Dr. Covey teaches, begin with the end in mind. Yeah. Once we have that clear vision, we have to focus on, well, really what's the next step in that direction? We don't even need to understand the whole process yet. We just need to focus on the next step. So it really starts with action, getting clear on the vision, stepping into action. 
I think if we're in consistent action long enough, we start to get traction and then we can move into other phases of the growth continuum. But, mm. but in the traction phase and the momentum phase, there is a lot of hustle and grind. You know, there's, there's people that are working 60, 80, 100 hour work weeks in the early days. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot, I think a lot of uh, people that we look at that are successful, you know, by, by different definitions or financially successful, um, that's missed in a lot of their stories was there was that that season of that. And, and I think that's a chapter. I don't believe hustle and grind is a lifestyle. Oh my gosh. It's not sustainable. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's a chapter in, in the story for a lot of people. For sure. I, what you just described is cadence, right? Mm. In order to get to cadence, you cycle, right? Is that right? Yeah. You cycle yeah. like to get to cadence, you have to have movement and then you have to have some traction that leads to some momentum and then you can get to cadence. Mm-hmm. And in any one of those movements you can hit a grain of sand a pebble of rock and it can move you forward you can move you backwards right and so that desire to like the hustle grind piece is probably not going to look the same as the the cadence piece but right you know that beautiful hum we're all striving to achieve that beautiful hum right the yeah. cadence and i think the secret is um when that pebble of rock gets into your spokes when yeah. you hit cadence or that grit of sand or something that we don't let it derail us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And well, I mean, we've all experienced derailment, right? <laughs> I think if you get to momentum phase, though, it's a lot easier to make that correction. Yes. Because when the roadblocks come up early in the process, you're going to have people that don't see your vision, people that may not believe in you, people that may not be supportive. You're facing the most resistance. You're probably putting in the most time with the least return or least results in the beginning. Yeah. And even in the early days. Yeah. And, um, when you get to a momentum stage, uh, whether it's in, you know, uh, fitness training, uh, you know, wealth growth, you know, financial achievement, business growth, like whatever the, the measure is, when you get to momentum, I think it's a lot easier to get back on track because it becomes more of a natural rhythm. Yes. Cadence to yeah. your life. You're not, and you're not too far back, right? Like you're not stuck. You're not at a plateau. You're not like getting beat up. Like you, to your point, you, you're, you're experiencing some rhythm. Yeah. And so it's like, how to get back on track. That becomes more of your homeostasis now. Yes. Like you're in a new rhythm of life. Yeah. Right? Ooh, I love that word. Yeah. It becomes uncomfortable to be out of that rhythm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. Every, I'm telling you, every single time I see you, I'm like, I wish I had a tape recorder. Well, I guess we are recording well, this. this but, I mean, recorded, yeah. <laughs> but like, there'll be hundreds and hundreds of yeah, people that like, listen to this conversation. I'm like, so. I'm like um, Every time we say, like, wait, what was that again? That subconscious, da, da, da. I'm like, I love that. I love that. Yeah, Ericisms. I love it. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, the cool thing for me about doing this is, um, you know, the really hearing people's personal story. Yeah. And finding the nuances and the differences, but also finding the commonalities. Yep. Um, and when I record a video or, or do something on social media, I rarely go back and watch any of that stuff. Yeah. I'm just trying to yeah, just, act on the inspiration, right? And hopefully it. it resonates with somebody else or I'm documenting whatever's yeah. rolling through my head that day. But with the podcast, I really like to go back and listen because even in these conversations, I go back and I learn again the second time. And I'll yeah. be like, oh, I missed that little thing that we talked about there. I didn't recall that. So that's so funny. Yeah. When I did the same thing on podcasts. Like yeah. I would actually listen to them and same with the content that, you know, doing a video, I'd never rewatch it, but like on podcasts, I would listen to like, Oh my gosh. Or even um, my coach, my, my coach, when I, you know, I work with a, a coach and 
Um, I listened to the sessions that he, he records our sessions. And so I'll re-listen to them. I'll be like, whoa, I can't believe I said that. Or wow, that was my thought process. Or that was my mindset in that moment. And kind of. I love recording the coaching sessions too, because I, it, there's things that are said in those conversations that impact you in the moment. And it's probably stirring things with us or we realize the frame of reference or, or, or thought, you know, place and thought that we were at in that moment. And to be able to go back and listen to that, because I, I don't I want to make sure I don't miss anything from that, because those to me are gold. It's so powerful to have an observer in your life and some form of accountability or feedback from someone that you trust. Yep. Um, I just, I think coaching relationships are hugely valuable and I love the idea of recording them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very cathartic to re-listen and it's also, um, jolting sometimes because you have, you, 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 you get in a time machine to capture an exact moment in time of something you said or felt or expressed and you're like, whoa. And, um, or, oh my gosh, I've grown so much. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned awareness as, as part of, you know, one of the, the pillars of emotional intelligence. And I think awareness is so key. And I think the complement to that, especially for people that are growth minded people is acknowledgement. Yeah. Because I think that we can get so busy doing and growing and building and pleasing other people and supporting our tribe that we forget to acknowledge the milestones and the progress that we're making. It's true. And, you know, I feel like for me, I've gotten much better at recognizing repeat episodes, Mm -hmm. you know, and going, Oh, I've experienced this before. And I handled it like that last time. Right. And, and then it's not that I'm conscientiously deciding to handle it better, but I'm reflecting back and going, I, I've grown because I handled this much differently than I would have a different version of myself, right? So, yeah. so yeah, it's kind of, um, it's cool to be able to reflect back on things that we've already experienced. And even it's not, it's not, it's hard to do that. It's hard to really recognize um, a repeat episode sometimes. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> Well, that that's one of the benefits that I think of uh, like recording the coaching sessions. That's right. Is yeah. if I'm playing those back and I hear the same topic come up too many times, I'm like, I'm <laughs> I'm almost like listening to it, waiting for the coach to go. Like, are are we done talking about this yet? Like, yeah. are you actually going to take the action? Are you going to make the decision? Are you going to make the commitment? Yeah. Like, what are the, What are the common themes? Not necessarily episodes, but what have been the common themes for you that come up in your coaching that you find is those areas that it's resurfacing, it's rearing its mm-hmm. head. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. I think, um, I think it's easy sometimes to slip into old patterns um, where you can get, you know, for me at least, it can, it can be um, a bit of a mental swirl sometimes. Yeah. And I think that um, just being able to, in listening to the coaching sessions, we're able to be a little bit more of an observer and remove ourselves from the moment a little bit. And so I think that that's really powerful. Um, I think that overcommitting and some of that is through my own aspiration. Some of it is through trying to, to please other people and take on too many responsibilities at once. And so then you just create a sense of overwhelm, which ultimately becomes paralyzed, paralyzing because our, in, in, in a sense, because uh, our focus is too fragmented. Yes. And so we're not really making significant progress in any area by trying to juggle too many things at once. That's an art. 
right? Sure. To get to that um, maturity of sorts where you know now how to juggle the balls, so to speak, or prioritize the balls instead of juggling all of them. Be like, okay, I've just came up with, especially for people who are really good at ideas, creativity, ideation, yeah. that have vision, um, to be able to, you know, prioritize them and figure out, you know, what is, is that's this is so hard because to your point, I think a lot of brilliant people can end up in that um, procrastination analysis like that. Overwhelmed. For sure. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, you, you and I have both been fortunate to have some great leaders around us and great yeah. mentors and, and be exposed to a community of people who are all, you know, exceptionally brilliant. talented and brilliant yeah. achievers. And, um, so I'm thankful for that. And it also challenges us, right? To yeah. keep kind of raising the bar or keep thinking a little bit bigger. One of the things that I've learned from that, we were having a conversation this morning actually about EOS, the entrepreneurial operating system, mm -hmm. and how much clarity came away. This is with a friend of mine that owns a big, big business and actually owns like five companies. And so you think about that in the sense of what I just said, like, oh, I'm in overwhelm and I'm trying to do too many things. But here's somebody that's really effectively operating five different yes. organizations and leading those. And But the key is the people that you surround yourself with, the systems you put in place, and then having that integrator role and implementer yes. role in your company. That's Those are the key people to have around a visionary. Yes. And so if you're a visionary or you think you're a visionary or an idea, per, idea person and you, you don't have some people or some structure like yeah. that, then that's how you stay stuck in that world. Yeah. Right. I mean, this, I mean, this swirly world. Yeah, <laughs> it is. This swirly world. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. I think that's really insightful. Very insightful. I love mm -hmm. that. Integrator role into in, implementer. implementer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise, what did what does somebody say before that like really great ideas or just ideas or just dreams unless you do something with them or something along those yeah, lines? Yeah, without action. Without yeah. action. Yeah. yeah. What ideas? It's so funny. Notice how I'm like flipping the script and asking you. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting interviewed. <laughs> so you never invite somebody that's hosted a podcast on your podcast. So you know, pro tip. Well, it's just that every time I talk to you, I get so much. It's so awesome. But like, what, you. what have been like some of your, um, you know? big ideas that were maybe the catalyst for you recognizing what you needed to do. Mm, gosh, well, I've been writing a book for years <laughs> titled the same thing as this podcast, live your legacy. And I have some really strong uh, beliefs around that. And I have a vision for what that can be and like what's in my heart to share with the world. Um, and I want it to be something that really moves people in a meaningful way. That. Um, and not, not that doesn't come for me from an ego place at all. It's just, these are the conversations that are really fulfilling and rewarding for me. And the feedback that I get, like just since I started the podcast, which is less, less than a year ago, um, the way that it resonates with people and the messages they take away and, and how it's made an impact or had an influence in their life is really rewarding and powerful and meaningful. And I think that that's special and it doesn't really have a lot to do with me. I just feel a responsibility. If I have an inspiration of an idea or I have an inspiration of some words or I have an inspiration to make a call to somebody, then it's my responsibility to just act on the inspiration. So I'm not necessarily the author of the story. I'm maybe just the scribe. I love it. But it's my responsibility to share that. 
Well, I think that's what's so special is that um, you share from this place of authenticity to share, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we use the word share, so kind of, you know, social media-ish now, right? I mean, that applies yeah. as well. But yeah. like, I just have always felt that like that when you're, sh- when you've been sharing, like the, the one year of sunrises, that was so cool. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was quite an experience. But, I mean, you share from a place of, um, like the passion to share, right? Like, and all the things that came to you from that. And it wasn't necessarily about, um, I just, I don't know what the right words are other than I feel like your share is just really from a generous uh, spirit. Uh, I'm not even sure that that people were talking about likes and followers when at the time I started. Yeah. I mean, that was never the motivation yeah. Yeah. to do it. It yeah. just sort of, that just sort of manifested, but that's a perfect example of acting on inspiration because yeah. I didn't have a specific intention. I didn't wake up on, January 1st and saying, I'm going to do this for an entire year and see how many people will pay attention to it right. and build a big following and maybe it'll help me sell more houses. And yeah. like, there was, there was none of that. Yeah. It was, but you told me some good stories about that. Like I said, um, we've known each other for years, but to go on that hike, I'm like, you know, I got to learn so many um, great stories. And yeah. I'm like, oh my God, that's so amazing. And just the stuff we can't share in public. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Just the stuff we can't share in public. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're in a remote <laughs> canyon. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, if we don't get out of here, I need someone to know this. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. No, but um, yeah, it's really cool uh, the the way you, your intention behind how you share. And even like when we did the New Year's uh, brunch, I think it was brunch yeah. or lunch, me and you, Andrew, Rich, Mary Jane. Yeah. And um, your contribution, whenever people would share something, you like, you were really like, like you, you were very thoughtful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. It was really cool. So. <laughs> well, I think that. I think people's willingness to be vulnerable oh, God. Yeah. and reveal a really authentic version of themselves or to share something that is part of their personal truth. Mm. Um, I think that's such a courageous thing to do. So hard. And I think that the more that we can encourage that in the world, the better the world will be. Because at the end of the day, despite all that's going on in the world and media and conflicts of all sorts and disagreements and polarization of of viewpoints at the end of the day, we're all part of the same race. Mm. It's called the human race. Absolutely. And humans need other humans. Absolutely. And that connection to me is like the most cherished thing that, that we should have is knowing that the people important to us know that they're loved. Yep. And, and us being able to feel loved by, by living into our own truth. Yes. I think too, that I know for me, that vulnerability piece is a big one and it stems from being enough, right? Mm -hmm. Like this, this, um, that I'm enough, that you're enough, that you're worthy, you're deserving. And, um, you know, that I think lives in so many people that for me has been the biggest, um, that's always my growth challenge is you're enough, you're worthy and you're deserving. And even if somebody's not the most important person in your life, the fact that, you know, um, to help somebody on, on the street without wondering if it's real or not real, or everybody is enough, everybody is deserving, everybody is worthy. And so to your point, like that, that desire to want to make sure that, that we're, that people feel important that, you know, that they matter, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's critically important. Um, what was your journey to enoughness? Oh, I mean, boy. it sounds like you grew up with a supportive household. Yeah, you had a you had a, a rewarding childhood where you felt safe and secure and um, things like that. You you came out of you made your decision. Your, yes. your hallmark decision I, I to not shy. be shy in the seventh grade. <laughs> um, and, you know, it sounds like that you came out of your high school years and into young adulthood with a sense of, of confidence yeah. and some tenacity and, and some desire. And so where did that enoughness, like where was the season of life that you wrestled with that? And how did you navigate that to yeah. feel the self-confidence that you yeah. feel today? I, and, and to me, it's, a, it's, a, it's an active um, it's active that I always have to work on that. Like when, when we talk about the themes in our coaching that come out, like when I'm going through the doldrums, right? Like if I'm in a, in a valley, I'll notice that like, is that stemmed from that? I wasn't like, you know, deeply rooted is these feelings of not being enough or not being deserving. So, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly the origin of it, but I do think it started when I was a kid and um, I was always vying for, um, attention and not vying for attention in like a bratty kind of way, but more like, um, I was a middle kid. My sister and I were 16 months apart. And so I think that, um, I always wanted my mom's attention and she was always with the little baby. And then my brother would, or my dad would be taking care of me. Mm-hmm. But I, I think for me, some of the experiences I've been through in my life kind of exacerbated that. So, um, you know, I, in 2006, my boyfriend committed suicide. And I think that was a a big catalyst for me to have to really open that Pandora's box about being enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It kind of hit me in the face and it really, that's an unimaginable experience to live through. It was horrible. um, My father died exactly a year later. um, And he wasn't, he he wasn't voting well in health, but none of us in our family thought that he was going to be passing when he did. So I think that that experience for me, this, my boyfriend committing suicide, that um that shakes your core it doesn't shake your core it breaks it yeah <laughs> you know does. so it really shatters i mean and anybody who's listening any of your 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 listeners anybody who's been the collateral damage of somebody that took their own life understands this inexplainable um duality mm-hmm. because you're grieving the loss of somebody and you don't even know the residuals that you have until I mean, there's no timeline, but yeah. you know, it's um, yeah, it's been it was a lot that really brought a lot to the surface for me in terms of being enough, what being you know worthy, um, things like that, and and you go through something like that, and you know your support system shows up for you, but even the people that are so close to you, um, in their desire to really support you, don't say the right things, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I I one of my very dear close friends said to me. If he really loved you, he wouldn't have done that. Oh my gosh. And and she was coming from a place of being protective of me, right? Like, why would if you didn't you didn't stop crying your eyes out because like that was selfish of him to do that? Yes. Like that's probably the yes. perspective she was having, right? Yes, what a what a bastard, what a selfish person, this and that. And so she was reacting to emotionally, like when you talked about regulation. Yes. That was probably her emotional reaction. That's right. That. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. There's so much, there's, there's so many different, um, things. And, um, you know, I, I kind of felt like the special Olympics of family and friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, 
So in work, um, you know, people either avoid or want to be there for you. But I think at the same time, they wonder, is she having a good day or a bad day? Is, is, you know what I mean? Like, do I want to ask her for something? I don't know how things, how she's doing. And I know that anybody who's gone through any kind of loss understands that. And there's loss and there's trauma. Yeah. <laughs> and you're dealing with both. And so um, that was an experience in my life that... And you're dealing with both and it's extreme trauma. Extreme. Anytime there's an unexpected death, it's extreme, extreme trauma. trauma. Any Anytime there's... A, a, a violent yeah. death. I'm, I'm probably not saying that appropriately, but but but, but it's true. It's, it's just what the it truth. Is. So, yeah. I mean, we uh, can all try and find. There's trauma, extreme trauma, extreme trauma. And I didn't deal with it. You know, I dealt with it by ignoring it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, you know, I threw myself into work, but um, that was a different avenue for me to just not deal with my stuff, and um, made me work harder to achieve worthiness. How long do you feel like you suppress that by, I mean, obviously there's all sorts of coping mechanisms that people use, but yeah, um, workaholic is one of them for sure. I, I took, I went down that road for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I loved what, and fortunately I love what I do. So it wasn't like, um, but I, I threw myself into work and I, and I experienced the rewards of that too. I mean, I, I became, I was a high achiever in that, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm not, to, not to say that I'm not anymore, but, um, I think that it's, it's, um, you know, healing is not a straight line, right? Healing goes like this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you don't know it when you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. And you're just doing your best. And then you you have healing and then you have grieving. And grieving has the stages, right? You can, anybody can pick up a book or Google it and, you know, they talk about the five stages of grieving. But there's no order. There's no timeline. Mm-hmm. And you can repeat as many stages as you want. So that, you, that's, that, that's really important <laughs> to understand, though. I mean, I think that's a really astute observation that you said there's no timeline. There's no order. Right. And you can repeat any of the stages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, I don't have any regrets, but if I could do it over again, I mean, you know, I can't control. I will say this. I, I was very mad at God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I literally was mad at God and I and I and I would talk to him that way. <laughs> I think it's hard to reconcile a God who loves me with um, facing this horrible tragedy in my life. Yeah. It's, and so much pain. Yeah. And I mean, that is also when I really understood fruit the the term free will mm-hmm. um and you know i really wish that i would have allowed myself that i knew that i was worthy enough and deserving enough to take care of myself mm-hmm. you know like to truly get help um how long did that process take for you 10 years mm-hmm. 10 years yeah. yeah i mean i was 35 when that happened and i think it was about i was about 45-ish, and I was like, I don't know, kind of like in seventh grade, I woke up one day and was like, this is, this is not good. No. Yeah. And no one would know that. Nobody would have ever known me in any of that time period of my life and been like, wow, she's a really sad girl. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody would ever know that because I, I don't live that way. Like I still, even though I went through my phase of being kind of mad at the universe and God and sure. and then people that didn't understand, a lot of big misconception is that it's a selfish act. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I did research, you know, that's kind of my, my mechanism was, well, I want to learn about this. I need to heal. You know, back then people still read a lot. Of, we'd go to the bookstore. You could go to the self-help section. Sure. And so that's where I spent a lot of time. I would get some books and most of them sucked except for one. There was one book that I still love. I, I still think it's one of the best books ever written. And it's not even about necessarily about suicide. It's called um, The Gift of Hope. The Gift of Hope. Uh-huh. And it's like, it's like a warm blanket reading mm-hmm. that book because it's not about suicide. It's about trauma. It's about surviving trauma and tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so there are chapters about people going through divorce, people going through bankruptcy, you know, people losing a loved one, like, and it's this, and it just, it's this, it was just the best book of all of them. And I, I still tell, I still tell people about that book whenever they're going through something hard in their life. Um, I never sought counseling. Um, well, I take it back. I was a one hit wonder where they think three different counselors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just really <laughs> like this. I was so uncomfortable. And there was so much to, to just spew out of my mouth about all the things that had happened. Mm-hmm. And um, that's therapeutic in some ways. It is. And it's just, I think that, <clears throat> you know, I'm an emotional person, but I've lived in. I've, I've lived in controlling my emotions. And so there's this duality of that, the right. relief of just letting it all go and the discomfort and the discombobulation of just truly feeling broken Yeah, and just going, Oh, this isn't comfortable. I don't want to do this. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, I turned into my spirituality and I just, I read books. I learned about suicide and I threw myself into work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish I might've maybe done it a little bit differently because I remained very closed off for a long time. Mm. Like, I can't even believe we're talking about this right now. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for talking about it. I know this, we had, um, we had talked about this a little um, ahead because we had had a, a conversation about yeah. it before. and. Um, I was hopeful that you would be open to talking about it because I think it will help so many people. Yeah. And I I think that often the people that are in the most pain are not, we would not perceive them that way on the outside. You know, they're fighting internal battles or they're masking it or they're the gregarious social people. uh, And they're always moving and always going and always doing things. and. Um, I just know, I don't know if you had an experience like this or not, but through my own process of um, healing and and uh, navigating pain and loss, um, I reached a point where I asked the question, are you chasing joy or are you running away from pain? Well said. <laughs> and... That was like, it was just kind of a pivotal moment for me, like you described, you know, being closed off. And to your credit, you were someone that was willing to stay on the quest of how do I heal? How do I process this? How do I reconcile these emotions? How do I navigate them? And I think the only way through is you have to, you have to have a willingness, um, probably on some level, at least to talk about them. Yeah. And you have to have a willingness to sit in. In this moment right now. The moments are both the domestic. Yeah. Any of it. It's, um, I feel like, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's so misunderstood. Suicide is. We know what it is, like, from a physical capacity. We have, we all understand what it means. But, you know, most, most 
and, and not like I'm painting with a broad paintbrush, right? But, you know, a lot of times people do it is because they feel they're a burden. So it's not necessarily that they're being selfish. They actually think that they're not worthy. <laughs> mm-hmm. They think they're a burden or whatever it is that, that's their, you know, shame, guilt, fear, you know. Um, and so um, I really had to work hard, really, really hard to make it not about me. And um, it's something that was somebody else's journey that I happened to be a witness to and that I was very close to. And I like to believe that that person was able to let go because there was finally a, a certain level of fulfillment for him on Thunder, including that I was in his life. And that's a much better way for me to see it and to think that all the people that were here that loved and cared about him were left behind. Mm. that he did this to us instead i'd rather think of myself as he felt like he could finally fulfill whatever his plan was because of the people that were in his life Mm. that's such a powerful way to reframe that which is really a strange strange story to tell but if you're miserable on planet earth because you didn't have love and then suddenly and then you've had a fulfilling love now Mm. you're like i can finally get out of here right (laughs) i don't know i just it's it's a different way to look at it because it's their journey. I just got to bear witness to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Wow. That's such, it's such an incredible perspective. And I really admire, you know, the, the work that you've done and what, what that journey has to have been for you to get to that, that place, yeah. because it's so, so difficult to comprehend i think in our human experience well how that could happen human instinct is survival yes and so you know even though instinctively i knew he did it like i knew that he was a missing person and so but i just knew that Mm -hmm. it didn't happen you know i was like human instinct is survival we gotta go look for him what if what if it didn't go well? What if somebody is suffering? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, it's your point. It's so hard to comprehend because our instinct is survival. And right. um, it's, you know, it's unfathomable, but yet it happens. I mean, suicide's been on the increase, like third by 30% between the year, I think it's 2000 to 2018-ish, mm-hmm. increase of 30%. And um, concerningly younger people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think, um, I, I will say this, the experience <clears throat> was that much more kind of, um, overshadowed my dad passing because I told you I threw myself into work and then my dad died. And so then all the pain went there. Yeah. And then, then it was, you know, it was a while before I really dug into this other box the mm-hmm. compartmentalization of emotions. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, it's, um, I think it's so important that when you're part of someone's journey, right, we're a witness to their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to make sure that like, we find ways through it too, right? You have to, right? You could be part of the the train wreckage and behind, or you can use that to, um I think for me, and I don't, I don't know that I didn't, I haven't like conscientiously done this, like, but I think subconsciously my um, sensitivity went through the roof after going through this experience, because for example, um, 
an unanswered text message now is not a grounds for, you know, what a jerk. I can't believe I haven't heard from him. Yeah. My first response now when I don't hear from someone is, are you okay? Yeah. Right? So it expanded your your empathy. Yeah. The emotional intelligence yep. foundation. Absolutely. And I and I think I mentioned this earlier, but like our personal experiences can either make us jaded or they help us grow. So right. your EQ will get better or it will you're gonna go the other direction, you know. But um yeah, I don't, I don't really talk about this ever. And, and it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's very cathartic to kind of share. So I'm a little emotional, sorry. <laughs> There's no reason to apologize. It is an, an but, incredibly emotional experience and, and um, how could it not be? And, um, you know, certainly obviously still resonates deep yeah. within you, um, although you have processed it and yeah. And reframe the experience in such a more positive way. And get to a healthy way. place, a healthy mindset yeah. about it. And I I just think too that, <clears throat> you know, um, our experiences help us mm-hmm. develop our character. <laughs> right. You know, and I'm not saying that people become more perfect because bad things have happened in their life, but they serve as a framework and an opportunity. And um, it doesn't mean that you don't have any cracks in the veneer. It doesn't mean that, you know, you approach life with perfection and that you become this amazing superhuman. (laughs) But, um, you know, you get chosen to have these experiences for some reason. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I I believe that too. I think it, um, I think it shapes our perspective and it equips us in certain ways and i think sometimes the place that we're at in our journey we don't understand and so you know we talked about appreciate or awareness and acknowledgement and um you know i think there has to be acceptance as part of that too so we may not understand it we may not agree with it we may not think it's fair we may not think it serves us you know it, it may be so far removed from what we wanted or desired but we have to accept it because it is what is. Acceptance is very powerful. Extremely powerful is is acceptance because um, you can still spend a lot of time asking, why did this have to happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we don't get the answer, <laughs> right? I mean, well, that's almost our human ego at exactly. work, right? Like we're in control of any of it. Exactly. You know what I mean? I'm not in control of what happens in the next two hours. Right, exactly, exactly. I, I can have an agenda. Yes. I can I can have intention about what I'm going to do yeah. or where I'm going to go, or yeah. but I'm not really in control of any of it. I, I will tell you that I love what you brought up as acceptance because um, for me, almost everything that, that kind of happens, instead of trying, I mean, there I, I got a lot of humanness in me, so... I will still go down like, I don't understand why this happened, but then I can, I can get back on track with, I need to accept this because acceptance is um, the magic key Mm -hmm. to moving forward in whatever that looks like for you. You know what I mean? And so you have to have acceptance to be able to um, take the next step, process the next thought to not be clouded. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's stuck. stuck. I say it's a barrier to being able to see what's next. Yeah. And you know, um, I think you brought up an important thing, though, that I still go back and question it. I still go back and ask why I still am on the quest to understand or process. But I've also accepted it. Yeah. And absolutely. so you haven't let it restrict 
the rest of your life, you've been able to move forward. Doesn't right. necessarily mean you move on. Right. But you move forward. You move forward. Yeah. 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 It's um it's pretty gnarly when you think about all the different ways we handle things that happen to us. And um it's also very easy when you've gone through trauma to make little or or make big of other people's trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So um I'm also very I remember I went through a little period of like, I can't, you know, like, what, how do I explain myself? Um, when somebody thinks something's really horrible and I'm like, you don't know horrible. Yeah, they messed up my latte again. my latte. second time this week. <laughs> I wanted non-fat milk. <laughs> but um, that was also a pitfall for me. But um, huge growth factor on the empathy piece. Yeah. yeah. Huge growth factor on the empathy piece. And I also think this, um, you know, I had this post, there's a, a lady that I follow, her name is Melinda Vale, and she's local. Um, and she had this post along the lines of, um, imagine the hardest thing you've ever been through, and then imagine the person standing next to you might be going through that, right? Something along those lines, and just always practice kindness. And so I love the whole sentiment of always practicing kindness, but I feel like you don't know what the person next to you or that just yelled at you, or that just forgot to call you back, or just you don't know what they're going through. Even if it appears that they're their usual self, you have no idea what could possibly be happening in their life at this exact moment in time. And so, you know, that old adage, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated. Yes. Um, it's still, it still holds true for everything in life. And, you know, sadly, I, I observe a lot of both happening, right? Like, I feel like there's these extremes in our society today where there there's this element of like, um, just, I don't know why or where or how people get to this place where they speak the way that they do or express themselves the way they do. And then on the other end of the equation, you have such um, another, you know, element of, you know, our population just has this really high level of kindness and empathy and love. And mm-hmm. um, so it's, 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 it's interesting. <laughs> I think I think the four agreements should be required reading for like kids growing up. Oh, I haven't read that in a really long time. That'd yeah. be a good reread. One of one of the principles is don't take anything personally. That's right. And yeah. I feel like that's so prevalent in yeah. in uh in our society today is everything is a personal affront to somebody. Yeah. You know, and that that's not to say there aren't people doing inappropriate things or saying inappropriate things in the world that um but everything's not a personal like Kind of like your story about the text, like just not taking that person. Yeah. All right, something's going on with them. Whatever. Yeah. They got busy. They are you okay? It. Yeah. I'll give them a little grace. Yeah. I'll give them some time. Yeah. That's what I do when um, guys I'm dating ghost me after a while. I just say, I just, can you please just let me know that you're okay? Yeah. Just kidding. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then they text me back finally. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Gotcha. Gotcha. I got you to text me back. <laughs> right. Or you text them from a different number. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, saw you on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, wow. I'm really glad you shared that today. I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult to go to that place, but I yeah. think that that will really, um, I think a lot of people relate to things that you shared. Um, I think whatever, whatever trauma someone's experiencing, it comes in all different shapes and sizes. It really does. Um, I mean, absolutely. But it, it's all real. It's all very real to us if we're in it. And right? everybody, everybody's perception is their reality, right? Yeah. And so um, 
it's, I think, I don't know, it's just so important, I think, to be conscientious about what, and not to say that you're not allowed to have your stuff too. Like, I'm not saying like you go around and make sure everybody's okay all the time, but, um, you know, just being able to have that perspective of, you know, what somebody else might be going through. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's very challenging sometimes to know the right things to say. And so the reality is you don't have to have the right thing to say. You just need to let somebody know that you care about them. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah. I'm here. And if you want to talk, like, yeah. I really mean it. I really right? mean it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because there's no words in some circumstances. There just aren't any words yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. It's so much more. Um, and it's truly authentic to be able to say, I'm here if you need anything. Mm-hmm. I'm here for you. Yeah. Yeah. You're going through a tough time right now. I'm here if you want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So good. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel like I overpunch my talk card with people, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's better than yeah. I, I think I, I would rather I would rather have people that did that in the world that almost reached out a little too much or or than just stayed away because they didn't yes. know what to say. Yeah, which I think is a lot of people's tendency, especially in times of crisis or hardship. I think that's very true yeah. that people will just tend to tend to kind of hermit mm-hmm. when they have things going on. So, but yeah, I think. Um, yeah, it's a good combo. I think it's, again, sadly, I think it's happening a lot more yeah. now than it ever used to. So, and other well, traumas too. And like your decision not to be shy, though, I think that starts with each one of us being willing to step into that. Yeah. And be like, I'll be uncomfortable, even though I don't know the right thing to say, or I'll be uncomfortable yeah. to say, I see you, or I'll just. Or I don't even want to say uncomfortable, but I'm going to go out of my way today just to be kind to people, yeah. just for look for ways to be kind. Yeah. To people. And, and I also think, too, that sometimes it say exactly that. I don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's so much power to that to be able to say, like, you know, I mean, I always call them talk tracks. But, you know, whether you're writing a script or trying to figure out how to connect with a human, like, <laughs> I right. don't know what to say, you know. Um, so I think that's shows that you care and you know that's all that really matters you you had shared when we were um on our hike about you having a conversation i believe with your son about the importance of checking on our people and making sure like during the pandemic and just how it was um, leaving you know effects on people or what people were going through or that was a great example in our society i think of how some people like shut down Mm -hmm. and some people um went into hermit mode. Some people became more outward to make sure others were doing well. And that whole idea of, I think that's how I ended up talking to you about my, my story, but I thought that was really cool that you collected your family tribe and were like, we got to be there for other people. Yeah. I think the world is looking for leaders and I think leaders take on all forms and um, some of it begins with self-leadership. Uh, holding ourselves accountable to the standards that we have for our own lives and living into our core values. And then I think some of that starts with just being willing to be uh, proactive and just go out of our way to reach out to people and connect, whether we get a response or not. Uh, I think just, uh, I think we all have a need to be seen. We all have a need to feel connection and we all have a need to feel loved. And I think any of those acts, even if it's a quick text, Hey, I saw this thing that made me think of you today. Or, hey, I was just thinking about you. Or, hey, I hope your trip went great. Or whatever. Just some simple reach out um, 
really, really makes a difference to people. It does. And it especially, it's appreciated in times of triumph. And it could be a, such a powerful difference maker in times of trial. Oh my gosh. You know, I love this game. I play with myself. Like, um, that sounds really funny. <laughs> so it's, that's, a, it's a really funny All right, That's going to be but another episode. Little, yeah. <laughs> but um, when, like, a lot of times for me, drive time is when I'm returning phone calls mm-hmm. or I'm having Same. thinking time. And I've really worked hard. Just very recently, I go through these little ebbs and flows of this thought process. And when you hear that little voice, it tells you to call somebody instead yes. of saying, I'm going to call them later. Or I'm going to call them this weekend. I'm really trying to listen to that voice and go and just pick up the phone and call somebody. I did that the other day. Um, I was driving down the street and I'm like, oh, my friend Jessica used to live down here. I'm going to call her. I haven't talked to her lately. And I just called her and, you know, we got caught up. She started telling me about things that are happening in her life. And I'm like, I would have never gotten to know these things if I wouldn't have just been like, I'm going to call her. Yes. <laughs> and um, so I would just say, I think that's really cool for anybody listening. Like when that, when you're hearing that, when that's, that's, you know, call it the universe, karma, your inner voice, whatever you call that God talking to you. I call it divine orchestration. I call it divine as well. Yeah. I, I'm like, you got to listen to that and make the moment happen. Yeah. Yeah. My kids will tell you, I have a do it now philosophy. I love it. Well, do our hike, look it. where we're at right yeah. now is a result of an instant message from a hike I posted. You're like, where is that hike? And you're yeah. like, let's hike. Well, what are you doing? And we just, we just, okay, I'll see you Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Get out of, go do a hike. Yeah. I went and did a hike I'd never done in a city I've lived in for 27 years. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's good day. Cool. But that's what's so funny. Look, look where we're at right now having this conversation. Yeah. And so you were my vessel that day, right? I was all of a sudden, I'm like, we were hiking. I'm like, I never expected to share this. I'm, you know, like random over here on the hike. Mm-hmm. So I just think you listen to that little voice, you follow those intuitions, and it's so crazy cool where you land. Yeah, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation. I appreciate you sharing so vulnerably. Oh, thank you. And I, I know it will resonate deeply with people, and it will absolutely make a difference in people's lives, what you shared today. Uh, as we wrap up, I always like to ask, what is important to you? about your personal legacy? What does that mean to you? And what's important to you about it? What's important about my personal legacy? Gosh, that is a great question. Um, Reminds me of John Linton in the the Inside the Actor Studio. What's your favorite curse word? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You dim the lights down. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Gosh, what's important to me about my legacy? I mean, it sounds so cheesy and hokey. I just want to remember for making people laugh, yeah, making people feel loved, and making people feel included. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a powerful legacy. Is it? Yeah, it absolutely. just sounds so simple. Those are my favorite things in life: making yeah. people laugh, making people feel loved, and you know, inclusion. I think that you do that, and um, and that's really what I like to highlight as part of these episodes: is people that I see living into the vision that they have for their personal legacy, not waiting until sometime in the future, but are they actually living it now? I definitely think you do. Oh, thanks. So, well, you're inspiring me to be much more, you know, visionary. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, this has been amazing. Thank you. My pleasure. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. And if today's show resonated with you, make sure you share it with someone you know and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when we drop the next episode. And if you know someone you think would make a great guest on the Live Your Legacy podcast, 
please reach out to us and get us connected. 